0: Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-IV task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Allen describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode.
1: Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. Uh, I'm Marvin Goldfried, and my esteemed long-term friend, colleague is
2: Alan Francis. Good morning, Marvin. Great to see you again. Good to see you. Good to
1: talk to you. So you wanted to talk about um, therapy, terminable and interminable. That sounds very psychoanalytic. Well, yeah, Freud wrote.
2: Almost at the very end of his life, one of his very last works was called Analysis Terminable and Interminable, and he was giving a warning to the field that, by and large, has been unrecognized and forgotten. He noticed that a lot of people in analysis were staying in analysis, almost as if it were a life work, and that people were not terminating the therapies. And he was pointing out to the field, it's kind of like Eisenhower's last speech about the military-industrial complex, he was pointing out to, to, to analysts and to patients that there should be an end to analysis, that you can't solve all of life's problems within a treatment. You can't protect against all the tribulations from the external world or all the psychological internal perturbations of the future. And I think it's a big problem now that many people are in therapy forever, and some need it. And what we should be discussing today, I think, is who needs to be in treatment forever, and who
1: needs to have a termination date, and how do you work that out? It's interesting because this was before managed managed care and limits um, uh, on uh, how many sessions you can have in a therapy a clinical trial, uh, which spoke about limits of, of therapy. But you'll be very impressed, Alan. I, I you know I read that paper, that, not, well, that's not a long ago, maybe about 10 years ago, because uh, I was interested to see what Freud said in comparison to what CBT people uh, say. And he, he said something very, very interesting. Apparently, Otto Rank spoke about the trauma of birth and said the therapy could be shortened if you dealt with the trauma of birth and it didn't have to be analysis, you know, a long-term analysis. And Freud wrote a zinger in that paper of his against Röck, and he used the metaphor.
2: There have been several attempts within psychoanalysis toward brief therapy. The first was Forenzi and ronk in the 20s. Uh-huh. And the idea was, that if you set a definite limit to the time, and if you picked a very focal topic that was the central conflict of the individual that you could get a lot more done a lot more quickly. And the brief therapy movement was shunned by classical analysts. But it emerged again in the 40s with, with Alexander and French, and in the 70s yeah, exactly with David Mallon and Davenloo and Sifnios, And it's always been, for me, a very popular, very important theme that some treatments should be quite brief and focused rather than overly ambitious and unstructured. And that we shouldn't, with every patient, imagine that therapy has to be long-term because many people present with focal conflicts and problems that can be solved better if there's the efficiency of having an end in sight. And in cognitive therapy, interestingly, it started out with pretty clear limits, but cognitive therapy gradually has become longer and longer as the goals have become more and more ambitious.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. And here I try to impress you with my knowledge of psychoanalytic theory, and you've overwhelmed me with, with details. But let me, let me finish this Ronk, the thing that Freud said about Ronk. He said, if somebody knocked over a lantern and started a fire in a building, you wouldn't want to go in and just remove the lantern. You'd want to put out the fire. And he said that Ronk's notion of dealing with birth trauma as a way to shorten the analysis made no sense. And then he did go on to talk about about stuff that sounded very much like CBT, which is interesting.
2: Yeah, actually, Rock had tremendous influence on American social work. Uh, The major school, Smith, the major school that started the social work education in America, was focused on Rock's principles. And when he meant birth trauma, I think a way of making it seem less weird is he was talking about separation anxiety. Really? Yeah, that separation anxiety was really the most fundamental of all anxieties, not necessarily edible anxiety for and so the idea of if separation anxiety is the most important conflict for many individuals, that can be best dealt with by having separation as being part of the treatment that you work towards in, in, in uh preparation. Yeah.
1: Sounds a lot like attachment. Uh in some way exactly
2: exactly. Yeah. exactly and of course it's not one size fits all but for many patients brief treatment is what they want the studies over the years have found consistently even before managed care that the average number of sessions people had in psychotherapy was five or six
1: yeah
2: so most people drop out most people don't want to commit or can't afford to commit to long-term treatment or long-term treatment's not available and when I was running an outpatient department in New York, I much preferred to have no waiting lists, but yeah. everyone could get a brief treatment. And if it was enough, that would be enough. It wouldn't be that they just stopped because we couldn't provide resources. And if they needed more, we could provide more. But the brief treatment would be the entree of treatment for everyone, and only some people would go on for longer treatment.
1: Yeah, and there is this, this push for briefer treatment so as to be able to reach a larger population that needs psychological help. Um, but uh, um, there's also the influence of uh, research protocols that are funded so that there's only a limited amount of funding available for any given clinical trial, uh, which means the limitation has to be in the number of sessions. And, and of course, um, insurance companies too can contribute uh, to this notion. So sometimes there are artificial uh, constraints. I mean, my, I, there's a, I was thinking about today's discussion and I was thinking about what we can point out as being very important. And there are two words that came to my mind as I was thinking. The answer to so many of our questions about therapy is it depends. It depends. Short-term therapy good? It depends. Is long-term therapy good? It depends. And we have not done enough research on what it depends on because our research uh, models talk about, you know, general effects, not interactions. Not enough work is being done on on moderators, the nature of the patient, the nature of the, of, uh, the problem. I mean, we see people that have early and severe stresses in their life or maybe even accompanied by constitutional limitations, short-term therapy is not going to necessarily give them what they need. I I think we probably will never
2: have an adequate research base on which to answer these questions because it's just so hard to research. But I think the common sense approach could be that when people present with focal problems in their life, the first treatment should be brief treatment. Yes. The other extreme, many people have lifelong problems, especially those who have severe mental illness. Uh, Bipolar disorder doesn't go away for most people. When people have had many recurrent depressions, they're gonna have more depressions in the future. That people with severe OCD don't suddenly get better. The people who have severe psychiatric and addictions, for sure. The people who have severe psychiatric addictions may have treatments interminable, and it shouldn't be seen as a defeat that they need long-term treatment. It should be part of disease management over the course of a lifetime, with less, you know, fewer sessions as time goes on, but always a relationship with a therapist. So I think we should be very aware of the fact that there's no cookie cutter and at one extreme, we're going to have lots of people. Most people who present for psychotherapy probably don't lead long-term psychotherapy. At the other extreme, we'll have some people who definitely do. And then in the middle will be those people where the ambitions are, are bolder and, and, and more encompassing. The resources available in therapist time and patient money or, or, or insurance company money available where more ambitious goals than dealing with the short-term fire will be desirable. In, in your practice, w- what would be the usual time of treatment for different types of problems? It depends. It depends.
1: It depends. <laughs> Seriously, no, it depends. I see people <clears throat> where it um, may be a focal problem we start off with, and this this is not, it's not only with me, lots and lots of practicing clinicians do that there's a focal problem, let's take panic. Panic disorder is, is a relatively straightforward approach for for treating a lot of panic disorders, but again, it depends. It depends on the person's life circumstances. If they're in a horrific um, occupational situation and a horrific personal situation, it's gonna be very, very hard to to make a difference. But if it's less complex, we can deal with it, but even when it's less complex, what happens is that the panic attack can be a red flag that there's something going on in the person's life that needs attending to. So we can reduce the panic symptoms, but the person may be in a job that they hate, that they felt coerced into taking, whether they should take. Um, And um, then phase two after symptom reduction is to deal with the issue. That is uh, causing the anxiety, which manifests itself as uh, as panic. So that's no exactly one problem right. to another. And then here's another thing too to, an- to answer your question: somebody comes in with a problem, we deal with that problem, and then they raise another problem. Well, you know, I've dealt with the work situation, but my relationship with my partner has some issues I want to deal with, or I'm having problems with my kids, or it's you know. Various other kinds of things. Or well, my elderly parent uh, and I have unfinished business, and I'd like to take care of that before they pass away. So they may come in for problem one, but and the, then you also work with problem two, but then problem three or four come up um, either at the time or they come back. So at least this is what is typical with my practice, which is, you know, a handful of cases.
2: Which well, really interesting that you start out, I don't know, 500 years ago as a behavior therapist. <laughs> you gradually, it just seems that way. You evolve, develop cognitive therapy as part of your toolkit. And then more and more, you're dealing with other problems that the, than the patient presented with and also with character problems. Yes. And that's exactly what happened with Freud. He was a neurologist, he wasn't even a, a psychiatrist. Who, Who did you say? Freud. Oh, was sure. And his first patients were pure symptom patients, and his treatments, the original treatments were hypnosis and suggestion before developing psychoanalysis. His treatments were geared towards symptom relief, and it was only when he discovered and his followers discovered that people's character problems interfered with the treatment for symptom relief and also presented independently all sorts of detriments to their lives that he began to be interested in the character, not just the symptom. Mm-hmm. And when the treatments began stretching out and becoming longer and longer, because it was a lot more difficult to help people change their characters than to, to improve their day-to-day functioning or their symptoms. And you've gone undergone the same evolution.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So you, your treatments have gotten longer with the years?
1: Well, I should, it has gotten longer. And my colleagues who are CBT therapists uh, the interventions also are, are longer, but there's um, the philosophy that I and many other CBT people follow is to help the patient become their own therapist. And there's a very interesting historical origin to this that I witnessed personally over the years. Um, when we first started back in the '60s, putting forth behavior therapy, we were criticized by you psychoanalytic folks, <laughs> being manipulative, Machiavellian. You know, we were talking about, uh, we our, we were talking about research that manipulates variables. So we use the term manipulate. So a lot of people picked up and I, oh, you're manipulating the patient. Uh, and then there was the behavior, modifying their behavior. You're treating them as if they were animals because the research, animal research was being used to talk about what we do in therapy. So we were accused of doing all of this stuff. So we then decided we would um, focus on um, having the person become their own therapist. And there was a period of time in the 70s where the focus was on self-control. So a lot of us were involved in this. And we were not really happy with that term because... Um, It came from a Skinnerian uh, background, Skinner wrote about self-control. And what he meant was not necessarily the inhibition of emotion or behavior, but rather regulating one's life so that it's easier to function more competently. So we then changed it to coping skills. The therapy trains in coping skills. And then the word "train" becomes uh, very—it becomes an X-rated term. It's like it better to say it facilitates the person, the patient, adopting coping skills in their life. And so that's that's the place that I am right now. It is a coping skill, which means that it takes time to learn how to cope to learn how to change one's thinking, one's feeling, one's behavior. I know it depends, but w- give a range of how much time it takes. In some instances, it, it, could take, it could take a few years. But that doesn't mean that the person has to be in therapy on a regular basis in a few years. So there's a maintenance phase of therapy that I ascribe to. And certainly you have this in... in uh, uh, in drug treatment, there's a maintenance phase. But the maintenance phase in therapy is to phase out. So instead of seeing somebody every week, every two weeks, every month, every six months. And the, the, the model for the intervention is, what did you do during this interval? That represents a change where you were able to be your own therapist. So it gives them a period of time of applying the skills. Skills such as reevaluating one's thinking, becoming aware of one's thinking. And I won't go into all the other skills.
2: Mormon, I have a very serious suggestion for you. This is not as a joke. And that is that you should write, perhaps with colleagues, maybe Alan, you should write a, a paper, a book, that would be titled Cognitive Therapy, terminable and interminable.
1: Okay. Thank you for your suggestion. I appreciate it. You're not jumping it up and down. No, no, no. I, wrote, I did write a paper uh, on termination, which, which deals with some of this stuff. Um,
2: yeah, I think cognitive therapy has fallen into the same pattern. I won't say trap, because for some people it's really wonderful, but the same pattern of getting longer and longer and longer and not dealing with the fact that the termination may be useful yeah. and that the person needs to internalize the coping skills rather than become dependent on the treatment.
1: I appreciate the suggestion and and I'm flattered that you suggested, but I'm at a point in my career where I'm trying to write less. Uh, get, I'm, writing get, get a mem- I'm writing a memoir. I was asked to write a memoir for a journal and that is, an, that is very, very hard to do. It's just- okay. Write a memoir. Of, what has your life been like? So I'm preoccupied with that. But maybe somebody who's watching or listening, who could write something like that. Maybe, I think, maybe, so, maybe
2: they, one of your students. I, I think it's a, it's a crucial point because certainly in less structured therapies, but also in cognitive and behavioral treatments, as they get longer, there's no real endpoint, and some patients become so dependent on the treatment that the reason they're coming week after week is because it in itself is gratifying and almost a place to hide that you, so yes. long as I'm in treatment, I don't have to make changes in my life. I'm really yes. working very hard in treatment, everything, I'm, all my energy is going into treatment. I can't really change my life. And I think it, it
1: would be. <coughs> I'm very, very mindful of that, that there are people who, um, and I'm currently working with one such person. And what I told this person was, you know, there was phasing out of the session. So it was like every two or three weeks. And I said, if you have a problem, you're having difficulty with, work on it your, on your own. If it, that doesn't help, work, it, work on it on your own again. And if that doesn't help, work on your, on your own one more time. And if you can't get it, then contact me.
2: I think that's great advice, and I think
1: I think that's very very important.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think some people need supportive therapy for life, and we need to discuss that because that's a, also a neglected topic. But for many people, treatment becomes supportive therapy. That at the beginning, there's the feeling of we're working towards change, and after enough time and the treatment becoming comfortable, part of the patient's life, the dependency on the therapist becoming stronger and stronger, nothing is being accomplished further. And in fact, there may almost be a regression into dependence on the therapy. And that may be necessary for some people. And we'll talk about supportive therapy. But for some people, it's a place to hide. It
1: depends. It depends, depends. right. So do you think there are some therapists that continue to see people because of the economic benefit that exists? I, I don't. In my experience, it's not
2: so much a conscious, I'm going to exploit this person person economically. It's more a comfortable, I like this person, they like me, our sessions are fun to have together. And the goal of actually improving the person's life becomes less paramount. And the fact that they're making a living becomes part of it. But there's such a shortage now of therapists that most people don't really have to depend on keeping people in order to make a living. Yeah.
1: I'm I must admit, I'm worried that some some of this exists. Um, w- when I see a physician, I like to see somebody who's a bit older. Not, and part of it is because they have experience, but the other reason is they've their kids have probably finished college, <laughs> and they don't have to worry about tuition. And I'm I'm very serious in this. I mean I've I've heard one. Th- therapists say um i tried this behavioral technique and it worked and this was a person who i've been seeing for a long time i have to terminate and it was a lament do you think that
2: there may not just be the motivation that it's comfortable that the patient's dependent on the therapist but also the therapist is financially dependent on the patient yes a kind of financial conflict of interest that Trudes on many therapists over time. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Interesting. You're a more cynical person than I am, Marvin.
1: Well, that's true.
2: <laughs> well, let, let's go to the other issue of supportive therapy, that there are many people, either because they're managing severe mental illness or because of who they are, who may require lifelong therapy or at least yes. you know many years right. therapy. And I think that one of the problems there is that no one gets taught supportive therapy. Nobody gets what? That supportive therapy is insufficiently taught, insufficiently. Written. Oh no!
1: i and i not trained to do some.
2: Yeah, and never and never researched. Very real. It's usually the control group in the, in the study that whoever is not going to get the specific treatment in a research study will get quote supportive treatment, but it, and the supportive treatment even in the research studies is not sufficiently rounded to provide even a good control. And part of the reason for that is if it's too good, the specific treatment will never win out.
1: Well, did the the Menninger Research Project have supportive treatment as one of its conditions?
2: I I think many, actually, there are a number of very good books. One just came out recently by, by Markowitz. There are a number of good books on supportive therapy, and almost all of them emerged from research studies that had supportive treatment as the control group. And then people working on the control agreement realized that control treatment is damn good, and and actually, in my perspective, harder to do. It's yeah. easier to do treatments that have specific techniques uh-huh. because you have more guidelines. Oh, supportive right. treatment requires more sensitivity to that individual because the very def- definition of supportive treatment is. Mm-hmm as many defined techniques that you can yeah. fall back upon. You really have to do what works for that particular person.
1: And you have to do it in real time. Yeah. Within, within the session, picking up.
2: Yeah, I, I think supportive treatment requires the highest skill, and the people who do it best are the very best therapists.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a very interesting point. And in the maninger study, if you recall, the supportive treatment was just as effective as the psychodynamic treatment. Uh, yeah. I haven't seen people refer to that study for some strange reason.
2: It, it wasn't very well done. That may be part of it. Well, there's a lot of
1: research that's not well done. I think the results are kind of embarrassing.
2: Yeah. Well, also, the, the Strupp results that we've discussed before were college professors working with college. Yes. yes. Did as well as therapists, partly because they understood students better. Yeah.
1: You know, there's one thing I'd like to, to, to comment on, which I think is important when it comes to termination. And, and Freud mentions it briefly in his, in his paper, saying it would be nice when you terminate if you could foresee for potential problems and deal with them in the session before the termination. And there is wonderful clinical literature on this called relapse prevention. which was developed back, I think, in the 70s by uh, Alan Marlatt for dealing with addictions. And basically what it is, is you find out the trigger situations that are likely to create a relapse for the patient. And then you work with these situations in the session while the person is still in therapy as to how he or she will deal with that. Very, very interesting kind of thing. Uh, And... um, and very effective with, with, with addictions. You know, the relapse situations are you have a fight with your partner or a friend says, come on, a bunch of us are having a few drinks. Come on. Uh, and, and, or you're at the, at, the, at the party or at the bar, and it's like, um, I'm just going to have one. Oh, come on, stop it. You know, so it's peer pressure. And, and he found that when you bring these situations into the therapy and work on them, it increases the likelihood or decreases the likelihood there'll be a relapse. Take depression. Why are people not doing that in depression? Of dealing with those trigger situations that are likely to create a relapse. And we know that some of what these trigger situations are, right? I mean, clinically and empirically, they're, they're work related, they're interpersonally related.
2: I think good therapists are doing that. And I think it's part of what you were saying in terms of having your patient learn to apply what they've already learned in the sessions to their problems outside life without you and to begin to develop the skills that you've taught them uh, to to, to prepare for the next, the next episode, perhaps not having to have you around to deal with it.
1: I like that. Well, I don't have anything more to say
2: to you. I think it's it's time for us to terminate this this podcast. It's always it's always hard saying goodbye to you, Marvin.
1: I know, but oh, we we're, we're going to terminate doing this every week or so, are we? <laughs> Someday we'll have to. Well, you you said we're going to run out of things to say. So far, not, and we do get good suggestions so from uh, from people. Um, somebody made a note on uh, one of our podcasts, a commentary uh, saying, what about therapy that harms people? Next week? You wanna do that? You take the lead on it? Let's do that. Because
2: I think that's a very important topic. Can therapy harm people? I wrote a paper in 1982, I guess it's 40 years ago. No treatment is a treatment of choice. And part of the idea of that is that for some people therapy is really harmful.
1: Sounds good. Look forward to talking to you.
2: Okay. Stay safe. Parting is such sweet sorrow. Bye, Marvin.
1: We'll say goodbye until next week. (laughs) Take care. Bye. Bye bye.